I'm ready to go. Okay, so uh, tonight we begin the, the fifth principle. And uh, to do so, we are going to okay, find it now. Um, go like that. No, let's not go like that. Hold on, let me pull it up. Sorry. That was pretty cool. Sorry. Okay. Now you have it. It's there. Yes. 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 It's there. Okay. Great. Okay. So the fifth principle. So we begin as as follows. So it says, "Hayisod haChamishi." So the fifth principle, "Shuhu Yisbarach Hu Haroi LaAvdo UleGadlo," that it is Hakadosh Baruch Hu Himself. Who is fit laavdo to serve, ulagadlo, and to we'll call exalt, and to go ahead and make his greatness known, and to do his mitzvahs, and it's not right to worship or exalt anything which is below God in terms of creation. Whether we're talking about worshiping angels, or whether we're talking about the worship of uh, stars, we'll say constellations, or any of the fundamental elements of creation, uh, none of those uh, are not worthy of worship. Or anything which is a combination of any of these, uh, any of these things. And here's going to be a key line, which we're going to discuss tonight. And this is because all of them are sort of, it's inscribed in their DNA, we'll use that terminology, as far as what they're going to do. And therefore, it doesn't even make sense to, uh, to worship them. Because, because they have no judgment, nor do the consolations or malachim have, do they possess any free will whatsoever? The only being which has, in this regard, free will and control and is worthy of worship is HaKash Baruch himself. And it's not worthy, it's not worthwhile to worship them. And this also we're going to, uh, to get to, that the, we'll say, Malachim, and stars and constellations are not even worthy of worship in an effort to get closer to God. Meaning we don't use them as intermediaries either in order to get, to get closer to God. But rather, one's thoughts and one's intention and prayer should always be directed towards God specifically. You should abandon, push aside, or, or, or leave aside everything other than God. And this is the fifth principle. This is a warning against Avodah against idolatry. And there are numerous references in the Torah which warn against this. Okay, so this is the way the Rambad and presents the, uh, the, the fifth principle here. So now, the, uh, if you 
begin to uh, to think about this uh, this principle. So it's uh, it's a bit puzzling, because uh, as we've discussed, the thirteen principles. Uh, are supposed to be the foundation, the basis and the foundation of everything of Jewish belief. And until now, we discuss things such as, such fundamental concepts as God's absolute existence, his unity, his incorporeality, and his, ex- his eternal nature. And now, suddenly, we seemingly no longer focusing on something which is a principle, but rather it is a matter of religious belief. Now we're Psychology of prayer. And that's something which is a little bit unusual that we would make this a transition from principles of belief to something which is really a matter of, uh, of, of practice. Now, you might say that what the Rambam is really trying to address over here is to be worshiping God directly and not we should not worship any intermediaries nor should we utilize any intermediaries to get closer to God, that what the Rambam is really trying to capture and trying to emphasize, somebody has their, um, that they're really, what the Rambam is really trying to emphasize is the fact that uh, we should have a monotheistic belief rather than a uh, believing in multiple gods. But we know from our experience already that this cannot be the intention, the intent of the Rambam, because the second principle having to do with the unity of God already told us that there could only be one God. And by definition, one God means one God, which is worthy of, of worship. So since the second principle already precluded any belief other than a monotheistic belief, anything other than a belief in a single God, so what's left to be emphasized in this particular principle over here that I don't already, uh, uh, that, that I don't already know. So in order to be able to, uh, to understand and I think appreciate what exactly is being emphasized over here. So what we need to do is we need to uh, do a little bit of history as far as the origin of idolatry from a Torah perspective, where exactly did idolatry uh, begin from? And from that, this will help us understand what the Rambam is trying to emphasize in this fifth principle. And as we uh, mentioned at the end last week, the fifth principle, which is the end of the principles that relate to the nature of God and the character of God. So this is something which is, uh, which is going to be uh, important. So in the Mishnah Torah, in the Rambam's halachic work, in the section where he talks about idolatry, so it gives us the background of idolatry. Because if you think about it, the whole notion of idolatry from a Torah perspective doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Because if you start off with the beginning of the Torah, so you have uh, Adam and Chava, just for simplicity. So Adam and Chava. So there's no way that they can become idolaters because they are fully aware and cognizant of the fact that they were created by God himself. So it would be very difficult for the creation of uh, uh, the creations made by God's hand directly to go ahead and make them have the mistaken notion that maybe they should worship an idol. That's just, it, it doesn't make any sense uh, whatsoever to, uh, to believe that. And therefore, there's no way that Adam Arishon and Chava are going to worship idolatry. And it's almost inconceivable to think that Adam Arishon's children would become idolaters because they were also fully aware of there was nobody else in the world other than their parents 
and uh, their uh, their siblings. So how could they possibly think that there is an origin of uh, of of mankind of the universe other than God? And we assume that the grandchildren as well. So uh, uh, we would uh, uh, anticipate, and we would think that once you have a solid beginning of belief, so. Masora tradition should pass on generation after generation after generation that there is a single God who created the universe. We, uh, the way, uh, our practice now in the year 5781, we know that that stems from, let's just put it in simple terms, it goes back to the year 2448. From so 2448 to 57, we're able to have this Masora. So we are able to maintain a Masora tradition, which has spanned the course of 3000 years. So why, what happened from Adar Marisham from zero or from year one to the year 2448? How did things fall apart? And not only did they fall apart once, but we know that there were 10 generations from Adam to Noah, another 10 generations from Noah to Avram Avinu. And in both of those spans, uh, both of those eras, by the time you get to the end of that era of those 10 generations, they were, they were worshiping idolatry. So how is it? How did it happen that over the uh, the course of it's many years, but almost everybody who was alive in that generation of uh, of Noah was at the very least a child, or maybe a grandchild of somebody who knew Adam Arishon. So how do, how is it possible? How did they become idolaters over the course of that period of time when the Masoras should be something which is uh, which is which is so long? So the Rambam is also troubled by this question. Rambam also uh, wonders how idolatry was able to, uh, to get traction and get going at all. And he says that really idolatry came from an honest mistake on the part of mankind. That when it started, people were not looking to become idolaters, but it's something which happened um, uh, uh, over the course of time. What happened? So they rationalized as follows. The initial thinking was as follows that when God originally created the universe, so he gave powers, he gave dominion and control to certain, um, uh, to the sun and the moon and the, and the stars. So they have, like, like it says in the beginning that the sun is going to rule over the day, the moon is going to rule over the night, there's going to be certain seasons in the constellations, all of that they have, uh, they have power. Rav Hudner actually points out in the, in the Pachad Yitzchak, so he says that in all of creation, so there's only two creations of the first six days of creation, there's only two creations which were given dominion, which were given power and authority over other things, and they are mankind, and the other is the constellations. So mankind is supposed to rule over the animals and the plants and the birds and the fish and all of those, and all of those things. And the constellations are also given some sort of power and control over what's happening in the universe. So the constellations have control over day and night in the various seasons, the constellations, and somehow they are able to contribute to the snow which we have on the ground now, the fact that it's now towards the end of January, we're finally getting our first good snowfall. So all of that is under the control and the dominion of the constellations. Now, uh, so what did people think? People made the following, um, um, uh, they went through the following thought process. They said that, listen, when there's a king, when there's an earthly king 
that exists. So it's not only necessary to honor the king, but it's also necessary to honor and give respect to the various ministers and those people who are connected to the king. If you honor them and you respect them and you uh, uh, give them their due, so then you'll be able to, that will uh, give you favor in the, eyes of the, in the eyes of the king. It's very difficult to be able to reach the president or reach the mayor or reach the governor directly, whichever, uh, whichever political figure you'd like to go ahead and, and, and put in place. But if you know somebody who knows somebody, then you may be able to get in. So they figure that the consolation, so initially their thought was the consolations were given dominion. So that means that they are essentially ministers of God. So if I want to go ahead and I want to uh, position myself well before God, what I should do is I should position myself well initially in front of God's ministers, i.e. sun, moon, and constellations. And therefore, they would go ahead and they would, uh, uh, they would uh, um, set up temples and they would offer uh, uh, korbanos, they would offer uh, sacrifices to these various intermediaries, but initially it was not with the intent that they were worshiping the intermediary itself. What they were doing is, like we know how politics go, certainly those of us in, uh, in Chicago, those of us who remain in Chicago, there you line the, po- the, uh, the pockets of the correct people and you get what you want. That's, uh, you know, that's the way uh, politics often, often works. And sometimes you have to move up the food chain in order to be able to ultimately get what, the, what, the, what you want. Um, I don't think anybody has any doubt whatsoever that at the end of any uh, president's term, when they go ahead and start distributing all of those pardons and all of those commutations, none of those are beginning from the president himself. All of that has to do with somewhere low down on the food chain. And you speak to this person who speaks to this person who speaks to that person. And you move your way up the food chain till somebody finally who has access to the president could bring the issue or bring this particular person's plight up before the president, ask him to sign the part in the commutation, and then you can get it done. But you don't have access to the president directly to be able to influence him. You have to go up the food chain. So that's what people initially thought. People initially thought, they didn't think that the sun and the moon and the stars and the constellations were actually gods worthy of worship. What happened was they said that we're going to go ahead and line the pockets of the ministers. We will be nice to the ministers and send gifts in the direction of the ministers. And that will go ahead and position us well to be able to receive what we want from God because ultimately it's all about, the, it's all about God. But what happened was people began to, uh, the next generation and then the next generation, they only noticed superficially what was going on that people went into various uh, temples or houses of worship to go ahead and they were offering korbanos to the sun and they were offering korbanos to the moon and they were offering korbanos to the constellations and they misunderstood what was going on and they thought that people were actually worshiping. They thought the tradition was to worship the sun, the moon, the stars, the constellations, not realizing that you were only lining the pockets of the sun, the moon, the stars, and the constellations as a means of worshiping God. And that's where their understanding of what exactly was going on began to fall apart. And that's how they fell into idolatry from what ultimately was an honest mistake, thinking that it was worthwhile to go ahead and make nice with HaKadosh Baruch Hu's ministers have, do have 
some degree of control in order to be able to get better access to uh, to Akash Baruch Hu and to be able to get from what uh, uh, what you want from Akash Baruch Hu. That is the way the Rambam explains the origin of idolatry. And as we said, how idolatry was going to be able to gain traction in a world which was relatively new, and everybody should have realized that uh, the world was the creation of, of God himself. Rev, Rev Weinberg, who we've uh, quoted often over the course of these, uh, these weeks, so he gives a beautiful example, what I think is a beautiful example, to illustrate this honest and understandable mistake that they actually made. And in order to, uh, to do so, so what he says is we have to learn to differentiate between what the, using his terminology, between the source of power and the wielder of power. Two different things, the source of power and the wielder of power. So in the military, for example, so the sergeant who's uh, you know above you, if you're a private, so there's a sergeant who is above you, he is ultimately the wielder of power. He's the one who's in charge, let's say, of the base and makes the decision and directs what happens on the base and what happens with the people on that base. But he's not the source of the power. The source of the power, as we know, is the president. The president is known as the commander in chief. The source of power of everything in the military ultimately is going to stem from the president, the president himself, putting all politics aside, but that's just the mitzvah, that's just the reality that the president is the source of power and then the generals and the sergeants and all the people uh, in between, they are all wielders of power. In the grand scheme of things, how much power does the sergeant actually have, even in the military as a whole, how much power does the sergeant have? Relatively little. He's also pretty low on the food chain as far as mil the military chain of command is concerned. But if you're private, and you have a family simcha that you would like to be able to attend, and you need to get permission to get off the base in order to be able to attend that family simcha. So who do you speak to in order to get permission to leave the base or to get a Shabbos off? You have to speak to your sergeant. You have to speak to the person who wields the power locally in order to get their permission to, uh, to go off the base or to get this, uh, this, uh, this vacation. And you're not gonna go ahead and contact the president who's the commander of chief, in chief and ask him for a weekend off to be able to attend a family, uh, a family simcha. So here what's going on is, so this could be confusing as far as the private is concerned because in the chain of command, he needs to go ahead and speak to somebody who is a wielder of power rather than the source of power. He needs to address the person who, has this, who makes the decision locally even though that person who's making the decision locally is really a pawn of somebody else, is really an underling of, a, 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 of somebody else. So this is uh, the, uh, the initially, the, uh, the earlier generations that began worship, quote unquote, worshiping the sun, the moon, the stars, and the various constellations. So they understood that these intermediaries were not the source of power. They understood perfectly well that the intermediaries are actually the wielder of power rather than the source of power. And that was understood by those initial, uh, initial generations. However, 
the, uh, the in, in subsequent generations. So people began to make that mistake and they began to confuse wielder of power with source of power. Because on a local level, all you really see and the only person you really interact with is that wielder of power rather than the actual source of the, uh, uh, of the power. So as we know, a, a minister or an assistant. So they really don't have any independent power or any independent decision-making uh, authority. All their job is, is to carry out the instructions of the, uh, of the, uh, of the king. I don't know if in Mitzias uh, that it, it works this way, but uh, for martial purposes, it would certainly seem to make sense that the vice president, whatever authority and power a vice president has, is merely as an extension of the president. President can't be in all places at all, uh, at all times. So sometimes you need to go ahead and send out the, uh, the vice president to take care of various responsibilities and to be present at, uh, at some meetings. But the vice president isn't making any decisions on his own or her own or its own if we take out uh, any uh, gender uh, references. So the, the vice president doesn't, get, uh, doesn't have the, the autonomy to make his own decisions that's a decision he was instructed, he or she was instructed what to do from the president and the staff of the president before this meeting or before the summit ever occurred. And although it may seem as if the vice president is making decisions one up, ultimately uh, using our current terminology, the vice president is a wielder of power rather than a source of power. Now, it's true that the source of power can step in at times and overturn or veto a decision that a wielder of power may, may make. So the sergeant may agree to go ahead and give you a weekend off, but if it, one of the superior officers above the sergeant decides to veto that, so they have the authority to go ahead and veto the sergeant's decision to go ahead to, uh, to give you that, uh, that, that weekend off. So the very fact that the sergeant can, uh, the sergeant's decision can be vetoed and overturned by somebody else, that is proof positive that the sergeant is actually not a wielder of power. Oh, sorry, that, the, that the, the, the opposite, that the sergeant is merely a wielder of power rather than a source of power. And therefore, there's not really a reason to go ahead and worship or to, uh, to try and make nice to the sergeant other than in the chain of command, that's your immediate superior. And that is the way the system is structured that you have to go through the system in order, but not because the sergeant is actually a wielder of power. So when it comes to uh, idolatry at the, very, uh, at the very outset, so the constellations and the other intermediaries, even Malachim and whatnot, so they have no independent autonomy, no independent decision-making, no independent bechira, no choice whatsoever as far as what they would like to be able to do and how they would like to, uh, to run the world. That's not something which is in their domain at all. They're programmed in terms of, that's the way the uh, laws of nature are going to work, that they're programmed to run in a particular manner. And ultimately that is going to be to follow God's will. So it's, uh, it's always going to be God's will, which the sun, the moon, the stars, the constellations and the malachim are going to, uh, to follow. Just in the chain of command, they happen to be there in between, but not that we should ever confuse them and think that these powers are, are, uh, uh, have any independence or autonomy whatsoever that would make them 
worthy of worship. So therefore, ultimately, uh, it's, uh, we, that's why we, uh, we, we maintain that it's useless to go ahead and serve or pray to any intermediary or any of the consolations or any of the of malachim whatsoever, because they have no choice. It only makes sense to daven to somebody who has some freedom to make a decision. But if it turns out the person doesn't have the freedom to make the decision, so it's a waste of time to go ahead and consult uh, with them. I'm sure many of you have had the experience, uh, you know, would probably would do, probably happens often in the workplace where you're discussing with somebody something that uh, that you're unhappy about. And after, uh, you know, trying to uh, plead your case and argue your position, the person says to you, well, the truth is, it's not my decision to make. So they tell you, what do you mean it's not your decision to make? I just spent an hour presenting this, uh, this argument for you. What do you mean it's not your decision? I just wasted my time because if you don't have that decision, then what are we doing? So it's frustrating to do. So that's the, the perspective that we have to have towards malachim and towards intermediaries. That ultimately, it's a waste of time to go ahead and consult with them and to go ahead and try and talk to them, try and talk, sense them or plead our case with them because they have no independent uh, decision-making power whatsoever. Excuse me. Now, uh, Shalom Aleichem. Yeah. Oh, we're Sean? getting there. How'd you know? <laughs> what? We're getting there at about half a page of my notes. Okay, excellent. So now, before we get there, thank you very much, uh, Ellen, for, uh, for challenging us on, on that. So now let's go back and let's, let's see, we'll appreciate once again what the Rambam says in terms of this principle. He says that, um, when he says, uh, we'll read the English over here. So he says, nor shall one do likewise in regard to any lower beings, meaning to worship, to daven, or to, uh, to contact really. Be they angels, stars, heavenly spheres, the elements, or anything which is composed of them. Here's the key. For they all pursue the course of nature which was assigned to them, meaning they have no autonomy to make decisions on their own. They have neither judgment nor free will. These are possessed by the Almighty, the Almighty alone, be he blessed. So here the Rambam is emphasizing this exact point that it may appear at times as if you could have this uh, powerful storm, which goes ahead, Baruch Hashem, we did not uh, have that, but they were, uh, they were scared about power outages and downed wires and all sorts of things which are going to happen in the event that we actually were to get the six to 10 inches or the five to nine inches, which they were, uh, which they were uh, possibly anticipating. And we look at you know, the harshness of mother nature, but mother nature has no power whatsoever. Mother nature is a mere uh, pawn in God's hands and ultimately everything comes from, uh, from Hashem. And therefore, if we want this snow or we don't want this snow, either way, whatever our preference is as far as snow, the, uh, it's only appropriate to turn to God, ask God for what we want out of, out of these things. It's not appropriate whatsoever to turn to the wielders of power or turn to these intermediaries as if they can make a decision. Um, so here, so now uh, swinging back around to, uh, to our question. So being that, we asked at the, out, at the beginning tonight, what is emphasized in this principle, which I don't already know from principle number two, the fact that we're supposed to worship God exclusively and not any other gods. So what is, uh, what is happening over here? So here, what the Rambam is trying to emphasize over here, above and beyond the second principle in terms of uh, God's unity, is he's trying to tell us, the, he's trying to share with us the fundamental principle 
that only God exercises free will, and therefore only God should be worshipped. And we shouldn't uh, confuse, he's trying to emphasize and remind us that we should not confuse the wielder of power, the source of power. And there may be many things, we say this uh, every day in the, in the Haulukas, in the Pesukere Zimra, where we say, for example, that you shouldn't trust the people that you perceive as powerful individuals, people who ultimately, ultimately he cannot provide salvation. So it seems often in our perspective that there are powerful people and they control what's going on in the world and they dictate and it's, they, have, they are, have all of the control and all of the power and we need to go ahead and we need to uh, get their approval and we need to be on their good side. But the truth is, David Amal tells us, never put your bitacha, never put your faith and trust in humans as powerful as they seem ultimately uh, they have no power and they have nothing uh, whatsoever and they can be taken down as quickly as anything else could be uh, taken down in this uh, this world and the only being worthy of worship is HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself and that's what the Rambam is trying to emphasize in this uh, in this principle by making this a separate principle above and beyond the second principle, which already told us that we should not be worshiping uh, idols. Okay, now we get to Ellen's question. Thank you very much for that, uh, Ellen. So now, once we find out that we are not supposed to be davening to intermediaries, because they, they, they are wielders of power, but they're not the source of power whatsoever, have no autonomy or free choice to, uh, to make decisions either for our good or for our bad, so when you begin to now go through the Siddur, so you'll notice that we come across many uh, sections, many phrases and, uh, and, and paragraphs, which become very difficult to understand. So the easiest one, which Ellen pointed out, is in the third stanza of Shalom Aleichem, which we say on Friday night, we say, Baruchuni L'Shalom. Baruchuni L'Shalom literally means, bless me with peace. And we're addressing the angels. By Malachi Asharis, Barakunu Shalom Malachi Asharis. So we ask the Malachi Asharis, we ask the ministering angels to go ahead and bless us with peace. So here at the very beginning of Shabbos, which is supposed to be a testimony to God as the creator, and he is the only one who is worthy of worship. And at that very beginning of Shabbos, we go ahead and we make what seemingly is this almost idolatrous statement in violation of the fifth principle of the Rambam, where we ask the angels to go ahead and give us a uh, give us a bracha, and this is something which uh, which uh, many of the commentators wonder how the Rambam, whether or not the Rambam would say Shalom Aleichem, and if he did, what was he possibly thinking as he would say that paragraph of Baruchun Shalom? Sure, Baruchun Shalom probably comes way after the Rambam, a few centuries after the Rambam. But what exactly would he uh, would he say about this? And uh, it may be easy to suggest without uh, knowing that maybe the author of Shom Aleichem disagrees with the Rambam. As we've seen already, that the Rambam maintained that there are 13 principles, and he holds that regarding these 13 principles, that they cannot, uh, if somebody doesn't believe them, so that puts them out of the, uh, out of the, uh, the camp, as it were, and that caused them to forfeit their, uh, the share of the, uh, of the world to come. 
But we know that not everybody agrees with the Rambam on all of the points which he makes and all of the principles. So maybe the author of Shomalechem disagrees with the Rambam and says that as long as one knows that it's an intermediary and not God, to go ahead and ask the intermediary for some help and assistance and for a bracha, so maybe that's something which is, uh, which is okay. I'm sure many people have heard and are familiar with the concept of going to uh, you know, somebody sick in the family or somebody needs some assistance in some way. So you go to a rabbi and you say, can I get a bracha? Could you give me a bracha? So what's that all about? What, what, what do you mean, give me a bracha? What's the rabbi going to? You go to God for a bracha. You don't go to, uh, to rabbis to brachas. You don't go to angels to, uh, for brachas. So what's all of that about? But commentators say that it's not possible for the author of Shomalechem to disagree with the Rambam on this, because it's really not the, the origin of this idea does not come from the Rambam. It's actually an explicit Yerushalmi. The Yerushalmi already says that we cannot turn to angels for blessings. And um, um, I'll read you the translation of the Yerushalmi, which, uh, which, which I have, which I have in my notes. So it says, it's Yerushalmi, brachos pertes halachi yudalef, Anybody wants to look it up. So it says, if human being has a patron protector, that's how far back we're going in terms of our English, uh, when, when that must have been translated, but a patron protector. If the individual has trouble, he does not appear before his protector suddenly. You don't go straight to the president. Instead, he approaches the entrance of the palace uh, of the patron, and he speaks to a servant or to an ambassador of the household who in turn informs a patron of his presence, meaning you have to go through the chain of command. You start at the person that you're closest to and you work your way up the chain of command in order to be able to get the attention of this patron protector. Perhaps he will gain entry and perhaps he will not. The Almighty, this is the, the, the Gemara now saying, HaKadosh Baruch however, is not like this. To get to the president, you have to go through the chain of command, but to get to HaKadosh Baruch there's no chain of command. If trouble should come upon an individual, he should pray neither to angel Michael nor to the angel Gabriel, but he should pray only to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says he should pray only to me and I will answer him at once. So here the Yishami is clearly saying that when you want something, I'm the man. Come to me. Every day is like my daughter's wedding in the, in the Godfather. So every day, if you need something, so come ahead and uh, turn to me and I will, uh, I will provide that for you. I'm the provider of those things and nothing else. So there's no way that the author of Shom Aleichem, he may be able to disagree with the Rambam about various things, but some just an explicit Yerushalmi like that, nobody's going to be able to disagree with that. So this is a, a difficulty which we have, which if you look up any you know, thorough analysis of the Siddur, when they get to, Shom, they, when they get to the section of Shom Aleichem, they will have this discussion there. How could we possibly be praying to the angels, asking the angels to go ahead and give us a bracha? We find a similar thing, for those who remember, it's been a while, Baruch Hashem, uh, but, uh, and it seems like a lifetime ago that we had the uh, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, where we were making decisions about, uh, about how to, how to uh, handle davening and whatever. But in the slichos that we say every day from leading up to Rosh Hashanah, and between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, so we have the Yud Gimomidos of Rachamim. We have the section which we say out loud, the uh, the Ashanu Baganus. We say all of that, and then there's a whole bunch at the end. There's a number of paragraphs which we say quietly to ourselves. In between Tachanun and the very end of Slichos, there's a paragraph which begins with the words Machnisei Rachamim. 
So machnise rachamim, those words literally mean those who bring words of, uh, 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 of compassion, of rachamim to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. In other words, the whole paragraph is addressing angels, and we're asking the angels, can you please assist us, take our tefillahs, and make sure they get to the correct destination. Make sure that they get to God. So again, commentators uh, uh, wonder, how could we go ahead and be addressing the angels over here and saying to angels, to take our tefillahs and make sure that they get to God, that also seemingly violates this Yushalmi, which says that when there is a need and there's something which is, uh, which is going on, we address HaKadosh Baruch Hu directly rather than addressing some sort of a, a, a intermediary. And this is something which uh, uh, also uh, commentators debate very, um, very strongly about the uh, permissibility to say that or the prohibition against saying that. People take very strong positions as far as this is, is concerned. And uh, in fact, the morale of Prague, the famous morale, in Reb Chaim Volazhin, so they actually, uh, they were of the opinion that it's prohibited to sing the paragraph of Barchuni L'Shalom. They felt so strongly about this, uh, this matter that you cannot ask angels for brachas, that they were of the opinion that whoever authored the, uh, this, uh, this song of Shalom Aleichem, they were incorrect, they were wrong, they, uh, they, they forgot this principle, they were thinking about this principle, whatever the, the excuse is, but they were incorrect as far as this is concerned. And uh, they, uh, they were of the opinion that it should not, uh, that it should not be said. And uh, they follow the, uh, they, uh, they, uh, they both say that really, rather than turning to the malachim uh, in order to be able to get a bracha, they were of the opinion that really what one should have in mind is similar to what we say in the Zohar. Now, if I tell you that we have, this is a paragraph from the Zohar that you're all familiar with, you scratch your head and say, huh, I'm familiar with the Zohar. I haven't studied the Zohar. But the reason why you're familiar with the Zohar is because we say every time we take out the, a Sefer Torah, the paragraph of Brich Shemei, which we say after the Hebrew Zohar, is a passage from the Zohar itself. So we may not be fluent in uh, the Zohar as a whole, but certain sections we do say and we are familiar with. And in that uh, section, which we say in Brich Shemei, so this is what the Reb Chaim Volazhin in the Marami Prague emphasized very strongly, where we say, I don't go ahead and rely on enash, is another way of saying anashim, people. So I don't rely on people. Nor do I rely on bar elohim. Bar elohim would be angels. So I don't place my trust in mankind. I don't rely on angels whatsoever. But what I do rely upon is the God of the heavens, do Allah Kishot, because he is the true God. The word Kishot means true. He is the true God. His Torah is true. And his Nevi'im are true. But not mankind and not angels. So here, the Sorkhan Velazh and the Marami Prague, so they emphasize, they say that there's no way that we could go ahead and we could say the paragraph of Baruchuni the Shalom with any uh, uh, with any um, with any foundation to be able to address angels and ask 
them for a bracha as if they have the ability to go ahead and issue brachas because they don't. And in the same way, there are people who do not say that paragraph in slichos of machnis rachamim. They skip it for the very same reason. If you look in the introduction, the art scroll introduction to slichos, so they have a section where they address this question about whether it is appropriate to say or it's not appropriate to say. Uh, I made the decision years ago because I read slowly that I'm going to skip it because that allows me to not fall too far behind or, or not finish 10 minutes after everybody else. So if I skip that, so that allows me to go ahead and, uh, and catch up. But there's actually strong uh, philosophical reason to go ahead and skip that paragraph because it seemingly flies in the face of exactly what the, this principle is about, that we dive into HaKadosh Baruch Hu directly and we don't go ahead and daven or address various angels or any other intermediaries in the, uh, 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 along the way. So I think uh, we'll hold it over here. So that, uh, I'm not telling you that you should skip saying Barfuni the Shalom the Shabbos, but uh, we'll begin next week in Mirz Hashem, and we'll talk about how, uh, despite our sensitivity to this principle and not wanting to daven to intermediaries, so we could go ahead and we could do, for those who are familiar with uh, Dafyomi, We'll use a size seven or eight sledgehammer to slam an explanation into the words so that they should not be uh, in violation of this fifth principle of the of the Rambam. And we could continue to go ahead and uh, and sing Shom Aleichem with the regular tune as we as we are uh, accustomed to. Uh, and then we'll also talk a little bit about uh, what uh, how to uh, to finesse that to make that work for us so that we could be uh, comfortable with uh, with saying that as we as we move forward. So hold it over here for uh, for today. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you again, once again for uh, for coming. And Amir Hashem, uh, I'll see you uh, Thursday. I still have to come up with the topic. We may still do the snow one day. Now that we actually have all the snow, so it makes it harder to uh, to to not. Talk. I had I had, a, I had a great incident that happened.